Well, good morning. Appreciate Dad leading us in singing. Anybody who's been a song leader before knows that uh, sometimes you just you mess up every now and then. Maybe you pitch it a little too high, maybe mess up a lyric. I've done that all too often. I tell people sometimes now I feel more comfortable preaching than I do leading a song these days. Um, just because, you know, you just don't want to mess up. Sometimes it, it happens. But uh, thank you, Dad. Thank you very much. Um, let's... Uh, talk a little bit this morning about something very, very important. This entire year, we have been covering doctrines that are unique to the churches of Christ or doctrines that are maybe we get some questions about. And some people look at some of the, the things that we do within the churches of Christ and we get a lot of questions and, and people wonder, well, why do y'all do the things that you do? So some, some things this year we've covered, we've covered a lesson on baptism and its connection to salvation. We've uh, touched on how, how to be undenominational and why we believe there's one church. We've also talked about um, some lessons on instrumental music in worship, why we don't have instruments in worship. We've talked uh, about why we partake of the Lord's Supper every single Sunday. So we've talked about these doctrines that are, are very important for us here in the church. And one of the doctrines that we believe in, that we practice, and one that we, quite frankly, get a lot of pushback on is the fact that we do not have women leading in worship services or serving in leadership roles such as a deacon, minister, or an elder. Now, in this day and age, when gender has become such a huge hot-button issue, for whatever reason, we are now seen as maybe misogynistic and oppressive towards women. We may be labeled as insensitive and, and rude. And I want to go ahead and dispel that notion right here, right off the bat. In absolutely, positively, no way do we ever want to diminish the role of women, ever. We never, ever want to downplay the role of women, make women feel inferior or anything like that. Unfortunately, there have been people who have taken passages from Scripture, and they have use them in a way to demean women, in a way to put women down. And those who do that are quite frankly wrong. You can't go to the scriptures and use them to demean somebody, to make someone feel inferior. And some people have done that. And folks, that is not what we want to do here. That's not our purpose in having men lead in worship services and men serve as deacons and elders. The only reason why we do this is the same reason why we practice every other thing that we practice in worship. And it's simply because we believe that there is a biblical principle for such a practice. We believe that the Bible teaches that men take on spiritual leadership. That's, that's simply the reason why we do this. Not because we want to put women down or make anybody feel inferior. And again, unfortunately, that's happened. And if anybody has felt that way here at Creekwood, we, we apologize. That is not the, what, what we want anybody to feel. And those who have done that again put people down are wrong. We just want to follow the Bible. That's simply it. And I know it may not seem, uh, it may seem confusing to, to some people, but again, we just want to follow the pattern and follow, uh, laid out for us in, in Scripture. So before we dive into the passages that are kind of the, I guess, the go-to passages for these in Paul's writings, I think it's really important to uncover some 
principles first from creation. Go all the way back to the beginning to get a, a foundation for why it is we do what we do here with women's roles. Okay, and, and we're going all the way back to the very beginning. So I want to point out a few points from creation and the fall. Number one is men and women were both created in the image of God. Okay, God created man and woman in his image. Look at Genesis 1 verse 27 says this, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God created both males and females in his image. He didn't just say, all right, I'm going to create man in my image, but not women, or I'm going to create women in my image and not men. No, both are created in his image. And now there's a lot of debate on exactly what that means. I believe at least in part, it means that we have certain capacities and abilities that no other creature on the planet has. We have the ability to feel, to think, to reason within ourselves, to, to choose. We have free will. We can we know what it is to love and to have emotion. We are more like God than any other creation. That's both men and women, not just one or the other. It's both men and women created in the image of God, stamped with his likeness. And that means, because we're both created in his image, that means we're equally valued by God. Men and women are both equally valued by God. He doesn't look down and say, well, you know what? I think men are more important, or I think women are more important. No. Nope. Both are equally valued in God's sight. doesn't matter if you're a male or a female. And this is the same when we come to talking about salvation. Look what Paul says in Galatians chapter 3, verses 26 to 28. For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who are baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free man. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. Now, some people use this to say, all right, we're one, so that means we could have the same roles and all, all of that. And that's really taking that passage out of context. Paul's talking about salvation here, that in Christ, doesn't matter what you're, if you're a male or a female, doesn't matter what your socioeconomic status is, doesn't matter what race you are, in Christ, salvation is welcome to everybody. And when you come to Christ and put him on in baptism, he unites you in his body to other believers that's what he's talking about here. And so in Christ, we all have an equal shot at salvation. And when we come to him, he cleanses us of our sins, whether we're male or female, whatever race we come from, whatever background we have. We all are one in, in Christ Jesus. That's really what he's talking about here. Christ died for both men and women, not just one, one gender. Christ died for all races, not just one, right? So in salvation, we all have an equal shot to be saved by Jesus Christ. And he makes us one in one body. So men and women are equally valued by God. And so this is, again, I want to reiterate, this has nothing to do with making women feel inferior. We don't believe that one bit. But I do want to point out now some, some points that are, are really crucial to understanding the role of women from creation. And th it's this point now. So God created man and woman in his image, but secondly, God created man first and then woman. Right? God did create man first, then woman. You go back to the book of Genesis, chapter 1. God created everything in six days, right? Rested on the seventh. On the sixth day, God created the beast of the field, the cattle and such. But he also created man, the crown of creation, if you will. And 
Genesis chapter 2, we flip over and we actually see that the, the creation of man is more expounded upon. We see a little bit more there about God creating man. So look what Genesis chapter 2, there's a, we're going to jump around in a couple of verses here. Genesis 2, 7 to 8 and verse 18 says this, Then the Lord God formed man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. The Lord God planted a garden toward the east in Eden, and there he placed the man whom he had formed. Then the Lord God said, It's not good for the man to be alone. I will make him a helper suitable for him. So God creates this man from the dust of the ground. He breathes into him, into his nostrils, the breath of life, and he becomes a living being, right? And God places the man in the garden. But what does he say? Eventually, God looks down and says, It's not good for the man to be alone. So at first, Adam was alone. He was the only human being. Now, there were other creatures there, but there was not another being like him, another human being, a partner compatible with him, perfectly fit for him, if you will. And God looked down and said, that's not good. That man is alone. So I'm going to make him a helper suitable for him. So what God does is in the following verses after verse 18 here, we won't actually read these, but God puts Adam into a deep sleep, right? And he takes out a rib and he forms a woman from that rib, and he brings the woman to the man, right? And here's what Adam says. The man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Adam realized there was something special about this creation of God, that she was like him, another human being, compatible with him, right? So notice a, a couple of points here. I just want us to notice Think about this question. Does God ever do anything without a purpose? You ever thought about that? Is God an arbitrary God who just kind of throws things together and just says, well, this is how it's going to be? I would argue, no, he doesn't. He doesn't do anything for no reason, right? I think God has a purpose behind every single thing that he does. So there has to be a purpose behind God creating man first and then woman. Because what, what he could have done is he could have created woman first and then the man. He could have created both simultaneously, right? But he didn't. He created man first and then woman. And we believe that God here from the very beginning is setting out headship, spiritual headship, that the man is to take the leadership role all the way back in the beginning. And so God created the man first and then the woman. Now, this is important because Paul is going to bring this up in a passage we're going to look at here in a few minutes. So keep this in mind that God created man first, then woman. Now, thirdly, I want us to look at this principle that the woman was the one who fell first, then the man. So God created man first, then the woman. But then we flip to Genesis chapter 3. And if you look in Genesis chapter 3, verse 1, it says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Indeed, has God said you shall not eat from any tree of the garden? You remember this, this text that the serpent is deceiving the woman. And the woman, fall, Eve, falls for his temptation and takes of that fruit. And she, she sinned. She sinned first. Now she did give some fruit to Adam. And Adam then also sinned. And we're not saying that women are more responsible or more culpable here. In fact, the Bible actually puts more responsibility on the man in this situation. But the order in which they fell was the woman first and then the man. The woman sinned first 
and then the man, the man sinned afterward. Now again, this is very important because Paul's going to bring this up here in a passage that we're going to look at in just a few minutes. He uses it to, to kind of uh, put, put some uh, instructions for the roles of women. So we're going to look at that here in a few minutes. So what's interesting is when after the, the man and the woman sin, God lays down punishments, you remember, right? The serpent's punished, the man's punished, the woman's punished. And look what, look what God says to the woman in verse 16 of chapter 3 in Genesis. To the woman he said, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth, in pain you will bring forth children, yet your desire, your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. So the, the punishment for the woman in part has to do with the, the man's headship over her. And so we see early on in the creation narrative that there's already a principle of spiritual headship. Number one, all are created equal and valued by God, but God did create the man first, then the woman, and then the woman fell first, then the man. And we need to remember these principles because, again, Paul's going to bring these up in 1 Timothy chapter 2, and we'll come back to that here in just a few minutes. But please remember these, these points here. Now, one more thing before we actually jump into some of Paul's instructions in, about women's roles. This is another instruction from Paul on biblical headship from 1 Corinthians chapter 11. 1 Corinthians chapter 11 is a very hotly debated chapter in which Paul talks about head coverings in the first few verses. And the head coverings were a symbol of submission for women in the first century and still many in other parts of the world wear head coverings. But before Paul even gets into that discussion about these head coverings, what he does is he actually establishes a principle that guides the rest of his writing there about head coverings. Look what he says in verse 3. But I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man, and the man is the head of a woman, and God is the head of Christ. Now this is, there's a lot of interesting points to unpack here. What I think would stand out to a lot of Christians is the fact that he says God is the head of Christ. Right? Because I, I think we'd all say Christ is God, right? And you'd be absolutely right in saying that Jesus is God because he is. In fact, he makes several claims to deity in the Gospels. And the rest of the Bible claims that Jesus is God, right? We wouldn't say that Jesus is inferior to God. We just say that they have different roles, right? Although Jesus is God, he did submit to the Father's will. You remember in the garden when he was praying, not my will but thine. If this cup could pass from me, yet not my will but yours be done. Christ submitted to the Father's plan. And that's what he's saying here, is that they're equal, yes, but Christ did submit to the Father's will. So then when you talk about the, the man being the head of a woman, doesn't mean that they're inferior. It simply means that there's a different role there. They're equal in value. They're equal in God's sight, but there's different roles. Just like Christ and God have different roles. We talk about the, the, Holy, uh, the Holy Trinity, as we say. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. They're one, but they have different roles, right? Man and woman, we're equal in value to God, but we have different roles, now, what's also interesting is that he says the head of every man is Christ. Now, I think we'd all also say that the head of a woman is also Christ. We're all to submit to Christ, right? Well, what Paul is doing here is he's clearly establishing a line of authority from God to Christ to man to woman. 
That's what he's doing here, this spiritual headship, biblical headship principle, if you will. I love how Dan Chambers handles this principle in his book, Churches in the Shape of the New Testament. He says, how do men and women handle this principle of biblical headship? And I love this thought. He points to Christ. For both men and women, the best example of a leader you can find is who? It's Jesus. So for men, as spiritual leaders, we need to model Christ. And I, I, I love what Paul says in Ephesians 5, that Christ was sacrificial. He laid down his life for the church. Men, we have to be sacrificial in our leadership, just like Christ was. But women also taking, taking notes from Christ. He was the best example of submission. That Christ submitted to the Father's will, even though he was there with God in the heavens. He left that throne and became a human being, even to the point of dying on a cross. Go read Philippians chapter 2 for that. So we can take our example from Christ, men, our leadership from Christ, women, submission from Christ, because he took both of those roles. He's the best example we have. So we clearly see from Scripture there's a, a model of spiritual leadership or biblical headship. And I wanted to make sure we pointed that out before we moved to anything else. But now let's move to some specific passages from Paul about women's roles, the ones that are kind of the, the go-to passages, if you will. The first one is in 1 Timothy chapter 2. 1 Timothy chapter 2. Now, before we actually get into this, you have to understand the context of this entire book. And what Paul says in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 14 and 15 is very important. Look what Paul says. I'm writing these things to you, Timothy, hoping to come to you before long. But in case I'm delayed, I write so that you will know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and support of the truth. Paul, at least in part, is writing to Timothy to help him understand how people are to conduct themselves in the church, church life, church organization. And you look through the book of 1 Timothy, Paul writes to Timothy about combat, combating false teaching, about electing elders and deacons, and about specific roles for men and women. Paul's writing to Timothy because he's a young minister in Ephesus. We see Ephesus throughout scripture, the book of Ephesians. That's where Timothy is ministering. And as a young minister, Paul writes to him to guide him about the church how to help him in his ministry. And so we come to chapter 2. Paul gives some specific directives for both men and women. Look what he says to the men first. Paul's directives to men. 1 Timothy 2 verse 8, he says this, Therefore, I want the men in every place to pray, lifting up holy hands without wrath and dissension. The word for men here is the, the, a word that really singles out the male gender. Okay? Men in every place, lifting up holy hands. The reference to every place here, a lot of scholars actually believe he's talking not just about everywhere, but everywhere that the church gathers. For instance, one uh, scholar, William Hendrickson, says, the sum of the admonition is that in public worship, the men, not the women, should stand with uplifted hands and offer prayer, prayer aloud. So he's, again, this fits the context because he's talking to Timothy about how to conduct, how people should work in the church. Church life, church organization, right? And so he says the men should stand praying in every place. Now the reference to holy hands, that there was a posture of lifting your palms up towards the sky, but really what Paul is concerned about is the holiness of the person offering the prayer, the, the life of the one praying. But still, Paul's directive is for the men in every place where the church gathers to be the ones who are 
praying. Then he gets two directives for women. Look what he says. 1 Timothy 2, verses 9 through 12. Likewise, I want women to adorn themselves with proper clothing, modestly and discreetly, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly garments, but rather by means of good works as is proper for, proper for women making a claim to godliness. A woman must quietly receive instruction with entire submissiveness, but I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, but to remain quiet. These are Paul's directives for women. Now, first he points to their dress, okay? And, and I don't want to hang on this point too long here, but I like what David Roper says, kind of summing this up. He pulls in some of Peter's instructions as well. He says, Paul and Peter were not saying it is necessary for a Christian woman to appear dull and plain. They were, however, saying that external appearance should not be her first priority. Instead of being obsessed with the artificial beauty that fades, her emphasis should be on the beauty of character that results in good works, helping others, lifting up those who are hurting, sharing the gospel with the lost. That kind of beauty lasts even into eternity. So what Paul is saying is, instead of being focused on the outward appearance, God is more concerned with what's on the inside, and so should we. The things that really matter, what we do for the Lord, is what's more important. And some scholars point to the fact that there were some ex extravagant dress for women in Ephesus at the time, and maybe some Christian women were trying to replicate that. And he's saying, don't worry about that. Worry about what you do for the Lord. But then you notice what he says. Paul tells women to quietly receive instruction, to be submissive, and not to teach or exercise authority over a man, but to remain quiet. Now again, a lot of people say, well, that's just not right. Paul shouldn't say these things. But folks, again, this has nothing to do with putting women down or anything like that. Why does Paul give this directive? Is it just because, well, I, I think this is what I want to do? No. Look what he says in the following verses. Paul's basis for these instructions for women. He says this, for it was Adam who was created first and then Eve and it was not Adam who was deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. Remember, we talked right at the beginning about the creation and the fall. And Paul brings that back up. And he says, you know what? The reason why we do this, the reason why women are to be submissive and allow the men to take the lead is be all the way back in creation. This is how God created it to be. That for man was created first, then the woman. And it was the woman who fell first and then the man. He's basing it all the way back in the created order that we talked about at the beginning of this lesson. That's a very important point that we cannot miss here. Paul's not just making this up and saying, well, this is how I want it to be. He's basing it back in how God originally designed it to be. And again, it has nothing to do with women being inferior or anything like that. Next, another passage, a very similar passage, is 1 Corinthians chapter 14. In this passage, Paul is actually talking about spiritual gifts. And in Corinth, it seems that there was some confusion going on in worship and some disorderliness in worship. And Paul has to write to correct them here for this. And so we have to take note of who Paul talks to here. Number one, he talks to tongue speakers. Then he talks to prophets. And then he talks to women. And he gives instructions for each one of these okay so first look at the directors for tongue speakers and prophets he says this in verse 27 and following and if anyone speaks a, in a tongue it should be by two or at the most three and each in turn and one must interpret but if if there is no interpreter he must keep silent in the church 
and let him speak to himself and to God. Let two or three prophets speak and let the others pass judgment. But if a revelation is made to another who is seated, the first one must keep silent. For you can all prophesy one by one so that all may learn and all may be exhorted. And the spirit of prophets are subject to prophets. For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace, as in all the churches of the saints. Now, we don't have time to talk about spiritual gifts. That's for another, another lesson. But there were these miraculous spiritual gifts in the first century in the, the New Testament church. And there were some who were prophets. There were some who could speak in languages they had never learned before. But Paul regulates their speech here. You see what he says to the tongue speakers, he says, at most three tongue speakers should speak. At most three, okay? And if there is no interpreter, then they don't need to do it. They need to be what? Quiet. The reason is, if people are speaking in languages that you've never understood, and there's multiple people speaking at once, that's going to be really confusing, right? It's going to be kind of verbal chaos going on. And he says, hey, if there's no interpreter, there's no point to speak in a tongue because nobody else can understand it all right so he tells them be quiet if there's no interpreter and only speak one by one he basically says the same thing for prophets he says you need to speak one by one all right there should only be three at most of prophets as well again there'd be chaos if you have multiple people talking and people would be confused so he regulates their speech saying hey speak in these situations and be quiet in these situations but then we get to the directives for women, and here's what he says. Verse 34 and 35, The women are to keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but are to subject themselves, just as the law also says. If they desire to learn anything, let them ask their own husbands at home, for it is improper for a woman to speak in church. See, Paul doesn't regulate the speech for women here. He just says the women are to be silent, to be submissive. He doesn't, if women were permitted to speak, he would have said women speak in these situations and not in these situations, just like he did with the prophets and the tongue speakers. But he doesn't. He just says women are to keep silent and they are not permitted to speak, but are to be subject to, subject themselves. Now notice, where does Paul base this argument from? He says, as the law also says. Again, Paul's not just making this up. He says there's a principle within the law, the Old Testament scriptures, of women's submitting. And now scholars debate exactly what Paul may be referring to here. Some say he's going back to creation. Some say he's going back to that account where the woman was punished and the man will rule over her. Some say that he's just talking about the Old Testament scriptures in general, that women submitted to men, like Sarah submitted to Abraham, Right? Regardless of what the point, what exact point he's talking about, he does base his argument from the Old Testament scriptures that this is something that was going on throughout the Bible. Now, he also says if they desire to learn anything, they should ask their husbands at home. Now, some people here say, well, hold on a second. What if they don't have a husband? All right. And the truth is some didn't have husbands. Some were widows. But I believe Paul is pre preaching there to talking to the vast majority of the people in the audience who were married. And that culture in particular, most women would have been married. And the directives still apply to those who were non-married. The word for husbands there could actually just mean men as well. And so they had maybe a father at home that they could talk to. Maybe uh, another man in the house that they could communicate with. Now, we've covered a lot of points here and I know there's been a lot to, to, to cover. 
I do want to say, at this point, a lot of people raise objections to what we've been saying. They say, absolutely not. Paul would never say these things about men and women. Paul would never limit a woman. And they give all of these type of objections. And we don't have time to talk about a lot of these. But I want to point to one objection that you're going to see quite a bit. And it's the fact that people say these are just cultural commands. In other words, what a lot of people say is, well, Paul was talking to a specific people in a specific context in the first century. And that specific context does not fit the church today. Therefore, these don't apply to us. Or they say things like, well, women didn't have as many rights back in the first century. Now they do, and so these, these rules don't apply. And the problem with that, again, is that Paul points all the way back to creation, to the created order, transcending all culture. You know, I'm not willing to say that what God created in the beginning is just a cultural thing, right? I believe it stands for the rest of time. And he also points here to the law, something that, again, transcends culture, not something that was just applicable to the people there. And also you see here, he says, in the churches, plural, not just one, but in, in all the churches. And so the cultural commands don't just apply to the specific you know, just the church in Corinth or just the church in Ephesus. He's pointing to, this is commands for everywhere. And I just wanted to point that out. There are going to be a lot of objections to these things because a lot of people can't understand the idea of submission. Now, as we close out here, I wanted to point to a couple of things. Application for these rules. Number one, I think we need a broader view of Christian service. And I get this from a man named Wes McAdams, by the way, has a great article on these things. We need a broader view of Christian service. Look what Wes says here uh, in an in, in article. He says, I hear women say about not being able to teach during worship assembly. It isn't fair that I can't use my talents to glorify God. But here's my question, and please don't take offense. Why is your view of Christian living and Christian service so narrow that the only way you think you can serve God is during the worship assembly? There are a million ways that a young lady with a talent for speaking and a passion passionate love for the Lord can serve and glorify God. My mother is that type of woman and she finds countless ways to use her talents to serve the Lord outside of the worship assembly. We must broaden our view of Christian service and realize that 99% of Christian life takes place outside of the worship assembly. Stop focusing all of your attention on the 1%. Christian living is so much more than just the worship assembly. I think he's exactly right. Unfortunately, for many Christians, we have this idea that our Christian lives are tied to a worship service, 60 minutes on Sunday morning, Sunday night, and a Bible class on Wednesday night. And that's just not the case. This is a huge part of it. But so much more of our Christian lives are lived outside of these walls. And women can do so many amazing things that are not just tied here to the worship assembly. In fact, I would argue, and we will in just a few minutes, that you can do even more for God outside of these walls than you can right here. Again, this is very important. We have to worship. We have to gather. But our, our Christian lives are not just tied to a worship service on Sunday mornings. There are so many different things that women can be involved in. Women can and should share the gospel with others. The Great Commission is for men and women. I think about also women can, can teach men, just not necessarily inside the, the worship assembly or the gathering of the church. You think about Priscilla and Aquila. Remember, they pulled aside Apollos and they taught him the way of God more accurately. A woman was involved in teaching there. So there's so many things that women can get involved in. I think 
women should teach our children. Women should teach one another. We have women's classes going on. There are so many different things that women could be involved in. And I think we need to broaden our view of Christian service for, more thing, for, for us to see that there's so much more for us to get involved in and serve the Lord. I also want to point to this for men. The bigger question is not what women can or cannot do, but what men should be doing with all their hearts and strength as spiritual men of God. I don't want us to just look at, hey, what women can and cannot do, but men, it's time for us to step up. It's time for us to get to leading as we should. Secondly, I want to point to a deeper respect for submission. A deeper respect for submission. Unfortunately, in our, in our world, submitting to people is not the right, the right way right now. It's, hey, you need to go your own way. You need to do your own thing. Whatever feels comfortable to you, you do. You don't submit to anybody. You don't answer to anybody but yourself. And so people can't understand why we don't, we don't have women leading here in the worship assembly or why we don't have women as deacons or elders. They don't understand that because they don't believe in submission. But folks, if we don't believe in submission, that means we do not believe in Christianity. Because submission is the name of the game when it comes to Christianity. We've been talking all year long about humbling ourselves and submitting our lives to Christ. We cannot be Christians if we do not submit to somebody. And that's God, right? And here's the thing. We all have opportunities to submit. But women even more have that opportunity to submit and to model Christ. And I believe women should be even more honored for their submission. Look at what Wes McAdams point to, all these opportunities for, for women to submit and what submission for a woman does. If we can go to the next slide here, gentlemen. A woman's submission to her husband is a picture of the church's submission to Christ. The best way for a Christian woman to influence her unbelieving husband is by modeling respect and submission. A gentle and quiet spirit is of imperishable beauty and is precious in the sight of God. And we've already covered these two things here. Women have a lot of opportunities to submit and to help others even by their submission. And I believe we need to honor that more because submission is so very important to the whole Christian life. And women have more opportunity to do that than even men. Finally, I want to point to a deeper respect for wives and for mothers. And I just want to read this quote from Wes McAdams. Our culture says it's demeaning to women to say they should be wives and mothers instead of preachers. When they say this, they're implicitly saying the role of preacher is more important and significant than the role of a wife and mother. They speak with disdain when they ask, so I can just be a wife and mom? With all due respect, the word just has no place in that sentence. My wife does a job I cannot do. She gave birth to our sons and she mothers them every day. I cannot be their mother. When my boys grow up to be faithful Christians, they will owe a great deal to their mother. I believe the role of wife and mother is a more important role than the role of preacher. Folks, women play a role that simply men cannot fill. And we point to this passage in 1 Timothy 2.15. Paul says that women will be saved through childbearing. Men simply cannot do that, cannot take on the role of bearing a child, of carrying a child, and of nurturing a child like a mother can. And I know not everybody in here is a, is a mother, but you, many of you have taken on that role for somebody, even if you're not a biological mother. And men simply, in many ways, cannot do the same things that women do. And the role and the impact a mother and a wife has on her family is so great. And, and even sometimes even greater than the impact 
I can even make. And so I think we need to have a deeper respect for women, for what they do for our families, for, for the, the church at large. We need to have a deeper respect. The role of a godly mom and a wife is beyond important, and we can't even really state the importance. And so many of you model that, ladies, here in the church. I know there's been a lot here, and I know we're over time. I want to end by saying this. I have seen so many women here step up in the church. And I, quite frankly, I wonder where we would be without the women that we have here. I think of Brittany Mitchell with VBS and the kids' ministry all summer. I think of Kathy Presley, Sandy Hall, Teresa Gallagher, Sharon McLean, Patrice Sargent, Angie Guillory, and many other women who devote their time and efforts to teaching our little ones. I think of Dawn, our secretary. If you got a communion cup this morning, Dawn set that out. If you, have, if you got a bulletin this morning, Dawn was the one who printed those and put that together. She does so many other things here in the church. I think of Janet Oglesby, Dawn Sims again, N- Nellie Edelman, Fran Busby, Kathy Pridgen, Angela Tapley, Sue Hawkins, Edna Guillory, Nancy Lenore, and many other who make Meals on Wheels possible. We simply would not be able to do it without those ladies. And I know I left some names out, but they're, without them, we cannot do some of the things that we do here. I think of Auburn Chasen and Kathy Shelburne and Kathy Kendall who are teaching the ladies class and we kind of threw it on them and they took it and ran with it and have done a fantastic job. I think about there's a ladies class on Sunday mornings, I believe. Folks, without women here, we would not be able to function. We would not be able to run. I wonder where we would be without the role of women here in the church. We simply... I don't know where we would be, really. We couldn't do some of the things that we do without you, ladies. And we want you to know how important you are and how much we love you. And we, I missed a lot of names there. I could go, we'd probably go down the line and mention everybody's name. But you are important. You are valued by God. You have an important role here. We need you. So please find your role. And men, we have a duty and responsibility to lead. And unfortunately, across the nation, men are stepping back instead of stepping up. We have to take the role that God has given us and lead in the way that we should like Christ does. Folks, if you have any need this morning, we want you to come forward. If you need prayers, if you need help, it doesn't necessarily have to be about this. It could be about anything. But if you have anything you want to to pray about, we want to help you. If you want to put on Christ in baptism, we want you to do that this morning. If you have any need, please come forward right now as we stand and as we sing.